looks like we're going to be hanging out inside for at least a little while longer. And with the colder months coming up fast, there's never been a more perfect time to stock up on all your comfy clothes. Lucky for you, you listen to the Choose Your Struggle podcast, and I have a sweet deal for you today. Check out my sponsor, Pair of Thieves. They've got everything you need, from shorts to lounge pants to underwear and bras. They even have a line of Disney socks with all your favorite characters on it. But here's the best part. If you use the link in the show notes or on my podcast website and the discount code RakutenThieves, don't worry, that's in the show notes too, you'll get 20% off every full price item in your shopping cart. So stock up on all your comfy clothes today and help out the podcast in the process. But I'm going to just go ahead and invite uh, Jay Schiffman up to share his story. So let's give it up for Jay. Welcome to the Choose Your Struggle podcast. I am your host, Jay Schiffman. Hello and welcome to the Choose Your Struggle podcast. Thank you for tuning in this week. It's episode 42. Uh, This is being recorded on Wednesday, November 4th. So if you're expecting me to talk about a lot of politics, what's happened with the election, it's not going to happen because it's chaos right now. I am going to pop in later. I'm going to record something tomorrow before this episode comes out. But before we begin, I do want to talk about something that I'm really excited about. You all know, because you listen to this podcast, that when we're talking about issues of substance misuse, uh, recovery, drug use, period, you know, there's really no bad way as long as we're doing it honestly, as long as we're doing it from a place of education and and personal experience, right? As long as it's not just, I feel this way, you know, it's all good and we need to tell these stories. If you had told me five, ten years ago that Greenleaf Book Group, which is a pretty major publishing house that put out a book that I really like, and I read a couple of years ago called Activate Your Brain, which is a book all about understanding, you know, what's going on inside your head and how it works, which obviously, you know my story. I went back to school and got my psychology degree just so I could understand what was happening, you know, inside my own brain when I went through my experience. But if you would have told me in 2020 they were going to put out a book about substance misuse, I would have been like, nah, man, <laughs> no, we don't talk about these issues, you know? So I want to applaud Greenleaf Book Group real quick, and, and, and specifically their imprint, River Grove Books, because they're putting out a book called Unraveled. And, <laughs> all right, I'm just going to go ahead and read you the first line of this synopsis, and you can tell me why you think I'm so interested in this, all right? With intense courage and candor, <laughs> a mother and son share their raw journey into alcoholism and drug addiction and the grueling work it takes to get out of it. So, can you see why I'm so excited about this? We need more major publishing houses to be willing to put out honest conversations around issues of substance misuse. This is a big deal. And more than that, for those of us who care about this, you know, this is a major win. But it's one thing. Look, I've I've actually been given advanced copies of other books like this and, and asked to do blurbs, and I've done a couple, and it's fun. I... I appreciate, look, don't get me wrong, I really love that I've reached the point where people want that from me. That's very touching to me. It's another thing altogether when the book is good, and the praise for this book is off the charts. So a giant thank you to Greenleaf Book Group and River Grove Books for putting this out. A shout out to Unraveled, obviously, the book itself. Go check that out. And thank you to the authors, Laura Cook Bolt and her son, Thomas Henry Bolt, because this is difficult to do. You know, I've toyed with writing uh, a book. It's hard. Writing a book is really hard, especially when it's telling your story like this. So huge, huge applause to the mother and son team who wrote Unraveled. It's out now. You can get it at all your bookstores, including your indie bookstores, which is obviously what we all want to support. So go check it out. Unraveled the book. So the beautiful thing is that directly relates to this episode. Uh, This episode is with someone that I greatly admire. They say never meet your heroes. And, and, you know, I've been on both sides of that. I've been really lucky to hang out with people I admire, and some have been amazing, a couple have not been. 
But one person who has just <laughs> sort of turned that idea on its head for me is today's guest, Ashley Lowe Blassingame. Ashley is the host of the Courage to Change podcast. You should all recognize that name by now because I was on it earlier this year. It went out as a special episode earlier this season. And her producer, Christiana Kimmick, was on this podcast a couple weeks ago. So uh, I really admire she and her, her team are doing at Lion Rock Recovery. You'll hear our conversation. The, the biggest thing for me, the biggest thing that Ashley does, I have been accused of being anti-AA before, which is not the case. I am very pro-AA because I'm pro-everything that works. What I'm anti is my way or the highway thinking, which unfortunately permeates a lot of the recovery space period more often in the AA camp. What I am hugely for is people like Ashley who do it right. Ashley and Lion Rock offer a, a myriad of different recovery methods. They sort of put a lot of it together and tailor it towards the person. And Ashley got sober through AA and is a person who is willing to discuss AA's pros and cons, the warts and all. And so those people I have the utmost respect for. You know, I would never recommend my recovery path for everybody. In fact, it was very difficult. And anyone who says otherwise, it just to me is being disingenuous. And, and you'll hear in this conversation, Ashley and I were able to have a really frank conversation around recovery. We went through very similar experiences, in some ways very different than others. And uh, we talk about that. And, and that's why I called this episode what I did. If you somehow haven't seen <laughs> the episode title, it's Speak Honestly and Carry Big Facts, because a lot of what's happening in the recovery space is not built on facts. It's built on, this is how we've always done things, thinking, and that never works. So thank you to Ashley. Thank you to the shout out today is Brendan Black, a very incredibly knowledgeable young man who we had a, a fun conversation about uh, mental health and food and, and farmers, and it, it was really, really interesting. I wish I could have played more. Uh, unfortunately, not all of it fit on this podcast because I was asking some really weird questions. Uh, not Brendan's fault, my fault. Uh, I just asked, asked questions that had no business being on this podcast. <laughs> so anyway, thank you to Brendan. All right, this is coming live from Thursday afternoon. I changed my mind from earlier when I was recording this yesterday. I'm not going to comment real deep here about the election. It's still going. It's looking like Biden's going to win, but nothing is certain yet. There were some major wins for drug policy, which is awesome. And I'm going to talk about all of that next week instead. So without further ado, here is this episode. Hi, my name is uh, Brendan Black. I'm a 20-year-old college student living in Central California. Uh, I'm studying to be an agriculture teacher for high school students. Um, and I kind of just, I don't know, I, I enjoy agriculture, enjoy public speaking, just, you know, kind of like being a college kid is kind of fun. Not right now, obviously, because the whole country is shut down, but, you know, we're making the most out of it. My podcast is about food, but it's more about how the food gets from the farm to the plate. There's, there's actually like a psychological component to uh, food at all, you know, not just specific foods, but the fact that we are eating and the fact that agriculture exists. Um, there's kind of uh, there's historical evidence to suggest that agriculture is tied into society and tied into psychology in ways that we don't really appreciate yet. So there have been a lot of ties to food and and our mental health. I mean, all throughout history, all throughout religion, all kinds of you know, there's been connections everywhere. And um, you know, I the first thing that comes to mind for me, and this isn't you know a a um, a religious tangent, but you know, that we hear religious stories all the time about different types of food. Well, the one that comes to mind for me is, is the, the apple in, in the Bible, obviously you know, there's the forbidden fruit, that fruit, you know, eating that food triggered some kind of psychological uh, transformation that, that turned us into the world that we that we know today, if you believe in that kind of stuff. But it, even if you don't, you have to acknowledge that every society, every religion, every belief system is based around the idea that food has a transformative property. And we've actually seen that in, in modern psychology. People often say that, you know, if, if you're having a disagreement with somebody or if somebody's in a really bad mood or if they're kind of, you know, getting, getting um, impatient, you offer them food. Maybe they don't know they're hungry, but eating food, even if they're not hungry, 
tends to have a psychological transformative, a psychologically transformative effect on them that puts them in a better mood. And why that is, is still kind of up in the air. I think a lot of it has to do with uh, the hormones released when we eat food. And, and maybe it's just from, from the warmth and the energy that is created through our, our digestion of that food. But uh, there, the one thing is clear, and that's that food does have a, a deeply, um, a deep psychological tie to our ability to uh, kind of function in the world and transform our world around us. If you want to go into, into specifics, obviously there are certain foods that are better for you than others. I mean, uh, it's, it's been proven that the chocolate actually has a beneficial uh, effect on your mental health. Um, there are certain foods that are better for your, um, not mental health in terms of, of, you know, emotional health but mental health in terms of physically mental health. So like blueberries are really good for, for combating like Alzheimer's and that kind of stuff. Hey, hey, if you eat nothing but chocolate and blueberries every day, I guarantee you, you're going to be the happiest person in the world. Uh, so I grew up in a small town, obviously, and I was learning very quickly that um, from, from the farmer point of view, the consumers, your, your average person doesn't really know much about agriculture and they don't care. And so, and, and because of that, they're, they're voting on things, they're making purchasing decisions, they're making, uh, you know, their, their perspectives around a, a negative connotation towards agriculture that, that really doesn't need to exist. And so the entire inspiration for me starting my podcast was to have these conversations with people, to ask them questions, to have them ask me questions, to kind of get an on-flowing conversation about, you know, what it is about agriculture people are so scared of, what it is they want to know more about. That's been kind of the motivation behind my podcast is just to kind of get a, a flowing conversation, whether it's a, you know, a productive one or not, just to kind of get some kind of conversation out there about what's going on in the ag industry and what people need to know about their food. And if you want to contact me, uh, you can get a hold of me pretty much anywhere on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter under uh, the title Talk Ag to Me. So it's T-A-L-K-A-G-T-O-M-E. Um, and then my personal stuff is, is my full name. So it's uh, Brendan, B-R-E-N-D-A-N, black, just like the color, pretty much everywhere. And um, I'm always open to conversations. Even if you don't want to come on an episode, I'm happy to talk to you about pretty much anything you have questions about. My brother and his wife had their first child recently, and it was a pretty big deal. It was, you know, the first grandchild from my parents. But unfortunately for me, I'm just not that big of a baby guy. Like, I'm super awkward when I hold him. You know, my brother put his, his son in my lap, and my nephew looked up at me with this expression like, you have no idea what you're doing, do you? There's pictures. They're pretty hilarious. But lucky for me, thanks to my podcast sponsor, Kia Babies, I knew exactly where to go to get the perfect baby gift. I got my nephew this adorable little towel. It's got these bear ears on it. And now my entire family gets to enjoy these really cute pictures of my nephew. He's all smiley and he's got bear ears. I mean, that's pretty adorable, right? So next time you need a perfect baby gift or just something for your own kid, go check out Kia Babies. You can find a link in my show notes or on my podcast website. And when you check out, tell them to choose the struggle sent you. You are you are the only uh, podcast I listen to with a catchphrase, which is pretty cool. Oh, well, that's awesome. Hello, beautiful people. There you go. I love it. I, I look forward to it. It's like a, it's like a friend saying, hey, what's up? Oh, I love that. Well, so that I didn't, when we started the podcast, um, I didn't know how to open it. And so um, I was always a big, fan. <laughs> I've always been a big fan of Marilyn Manson. And uh, the Beautiful People was uh, one of the songs, you know, one of his early 90s hits, right? And uh, so I just started with Hello, Beautiful People. And it was just kind of like an inside joke with myself. Um, and it stuck. So yeah, that's uh, been doing it ever since. Well, we'll get to the podcast in a little bit before. You and I, so I was on yours six months, uh, sometime during COVID. I Who knows at this point? literally don't even know what time is anymore. Er earlier this year, this will, this actually won't even come out for a couple of months. So by the time this comes out, you know, it could have been a year ago. Who knows? We got connected and then we realized while we were chatting that our, our experiences were very different, but they crossed, like we had cross points. Um, and so mm -hmm. I would love for you to tell your, your story um, and, and then we'll, we'll kind of jump onto some of those cross points that I think are really interesting. Okay. I 
always felt uh, different. And in many ways, I was different. Um, I lived in Boston, Massachusetts, uh, was born in Rhode Island. My parents are New Englanders. My mom is from Rhode Island. She's a Rhode Island wasp. And my dad is Jewish New Yorker. And um, so in that situation, I had two very different cultures growing up. Um, so that made me different. Um, not really feeling like I fit any in anywhere. And then I moved to Silicon Valley where I grew up um, when I was seven and I went to Catholic school. And so I had this, my father was a Jewish New Yorker. My mother was a Rhode Island wasp uh, and I was in Catholic school. So I had a lot of um, feelings of different and separateness, which I think did not help things. Um, I did have childhood sexual trauma um, which I also think did not help things. Um, but I don't think any of those things made me an alcoholic or a drug addict. I don't think they, I think that I was, you know, we have a long family history of addiction. And I think that um, I really always wanted to be someone else doing something else somewhere else, just, just cellularly um, wanted to be different and fantasized about being different and doing things different all the time. Um, but of course, none of the other things that happened helped the situation. Um, and so I started, um, I had my first drink when I was seven. Um, I stole a beer from my parents. I knew you weren't supposed to. So that's why it was attractive to me. I don't think I had any concept of getting drunk. And it took me a week to drink that beer in a closet, which is where I turned out to love drinking uh, later in my life. And, uh, and and from there it was, you know, Robitussin here and, and sugar, mostly sugar. So sugar was definitely a big piece of that. Anything that changed how I felt from the neck up, uh, that was, that was kind of my focus. And, um, I hit puberty really young again, lots of different things in mixed in here that made me feel different. But again, um, I think it was all really, I think a huge piece of this is genetic, right? Environment, genetics load the gun, environment pulls the trigger. And um, that continued as I got older. Um, by the time, you know, I was experimenting with things, marijuana, alcohol, cocaine, by middle school, I was addicted, heavily addicted to cocaine by the time I was 13. Um, and then I, sh my boyfriend put a needle on my arm the first time that I, I'm sorry, for the first time when I was 15. Um, and I had my first overdose of 15. And that was heroin. That was heroin. Yes. Yeah. Wait, so let's, let's actually pause on that because that is an experience that I think a lot of people, well, let me, let me take that the other way. Very few people will identify with that experience. Even those who are listening and who have used not that many of us get started that way. Was that something that you were, did you invite this or was this sort of like a him, like, Hey baby, try this with me sort of thing. Um, well, I should back up a little bit and say that, um, I, when we started dating, I was incredibly addicted to cocaine. Um, he was, I don't know. I, I, I can't remember, but somewhere between like 12 and 15 years older than me, um, and he, I didn't know he was addicted to heroin when we started dating. Um, we did a lot of cocaine together, but didn't know about the heroin. And when I found out about the heroin, I tried to get him off the heroin because, <laughs> you know, captain save the hoe. <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, I, uh, you know, and he tried to get me off, you know, cocaine and it was just this, you know, codependency cluster F. And, um, so I think I had gotten to the point where I was just, I wasn't stopping him. He wasn't stopping me. And I was just curious at this point. And I was also super loaded that night from other things. So, you know, uh, inhibitions were down and it, it was just a slow progression. But if you had told anyone that I would have been involved with needles, they would have laughed I mean, I was terrified of needles, terrified. And, and, and that I was never going to do that. I was a straight A student. I mean, ev all the things that would have been things to stop me from that being where I ended up, other than the fact that I liked drugs and alcohol, um, you know, that was never where I saw myself going. In fact, that was exactly where I figured I would stop, like I would stop right before then. Um, and, 
uh, I, I guess just the combination of curiosity. And then I did it that one time and I, I had an overdose. I didn't, um, not, not so much that I stopped breathing, but I definitely had all the other symptoms of overdose and it was so unpleasant. I hated it. Um, absolutely hated it and was like, why would you do this? This is terrible. Make this stop. And, and in some ways I think he gave me too much so that I wouldn't like it, but that's a whole other story. Um, and at, and, and then a couple months later, as the alcoholic drug addict thinking, uh, is it, I had the bright idea that maybe I did too much. And if I did less, I would, I would enjoy the real, uh, you know, perks of, of whatever, uh, whatever would be included with a heroin addiction. Um, not, not really knowing what that was, not really understanding that once you get addicted, you get, you get high, I'm sorry, you get sick and you get well, and that's it. And there's no more high, there's no more, you know, sick and well. And that piece, um, I really just, I had no experience with, I didn't know any other heroin addicts. I didn't know that much about heroin. So it was really one of those situations where I really had no idea what I was getting myself into other than the fact that I knew you weren't supposed to do it. But when someone, you know, when the drug, the, the dare campaign tells you, don't do this, it's bad, you know, people, you know, all these things. And then you see it up close, right? With whether that's cocaine or, or, or heroin, you think of heroin as like a monster that's going to jump out at you and, and, and claw your face off like honey badger, you know, like I, I, I thought that was, that's the feeling you get. But when you see someone take a small hit of this or whatever, you see it in a, in a bag and it looks like a tiny piece of dirt and the person takes it and they don't die and it's mild or whatever. You, you now don't believe anything that that other group of people says, right? Or like, oh, every time the do cocaine, you're going to drop dead. Now you don't believe anything now. So it was kind of like that, like that it completely invalidated anything anyone had ever told me. And so it, it, I threw, you know, the baby out with the bathwater on that. Yeah. Um, so as, as I like to say a lot in this podcast, fuck dare, <laughs> you know, we, and you and I actually had a really fun conversation about this when I was on your show about this, that saying that we both hate, you know, I wouldn't trade my worst day in recovery for my best day when I'm using and how fucking stupid that saying is because we act like if we don't talk about the good stuff, nobody will want to do it. Right. When in reality, it's quite the opposite. Then right. people learn not to trust you. Right. Exactly. So exactly. So I, I, you know, I just didn't know. And, um, and I really, I, I, I didn't know. And I was at such a, I was so far into my cocaine addiction that cocaine had stopped working. And I was kind of, I was kind of in, like I was, I was, I was so deep and no one else was in deep with me. So he was the only, like, he was my only life preserver in a weird way. And so, you know, I was worse than everybody else anyway. I'd gotten myself in so deep. There was no one I could talk to about what was going on. Um, so, yeah, so I got myself in this situation. And from there, I mean, it was just absolutely spiraled downhill. Uh, I went to a lockdown uh, treatment center when I was 16, uh, in Utah, which was very abusive and damaging, but it was a holding center. You know, I don't know that it was a holding, it was a holding place for me, uh, for my parents, where they knew that I wouldn't die if I was there. And honestly, I don't know that I would have made it had I not been there. So, you know, trade-offs. And, um, and I ended up going to uh, about seven, eight programs, depending on how you count outpatient and, and uh, detox and, uh, and psych wards. I had another heroin overdose, uh, May 17th of 04, where my parents, uh, my dad found me uh, blue, not breathing, um, you know, in effect dying from heroin overdose. And I talk about this a lot because this was the same thing, the same way that I ended up getting sober of, um, in January of 2006. So at a certain point, you're like, oh, I'm putting needles in my arms, I'm a heroin addict, and I have a problem. Like, it's pretty hard I'm sure people do it, but it's pretty hard to say like, I'm a casual, you know, heroin shooter and, uh, and I don't have a drug problem. So I was pretty aware that I had a serious drug problem, but the alcoholism piece, my, it wasn't that I didn't have alcoholism. It was that my drug problem was so bad that it overshadowed my alcoholism. 
But if you took my drug, if you took my drug addiction out of the picture, my alcoholism was pretty bad. Uh, I just didn't see it. Mm -hmm. And it was so low bar compared to what I was, the other things I was doing. So I continually tried to prove this, you know, once I got my arms around the fact that I had this drug problem, um, I continually tried to prove that I could drink like other people, that my, al- that my alcohol intake was not a problem, that, you know, such and such was a phase. I was so young. And um, every time that brought me back to, with, to some place, you know, took different lengths of time. Every time it brought me back to a life altering moment with a needle in my arm, every single time, the time where I overdosed, I had started drinking in my closet because that was, I was a big fan of drinking alone in my closet. I was like, you know, you have a problem when you're just so excited to get into the closet and start drinking. And I had come home from treatment, started drinking. And I apparently somewhere along the way, I blacked out. That was the last thing I remember is drinking. Somehow I went and got, hadn't been lived at home for a year, went and got heroin needles, blah, 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 blah. And then they found me with a bungee cord wrapped around, like I woke up with a bungee cord and, you know, paramedics over me, my shirt, my sweatshirt cut off, people giving me CPR. Like that's what I woke up to having gone in drinking. Mm -hmm. I have no idea where or how I got drugs. No idea. So that, and I did the same, I did not this, not the same thing, not make the decision. I wasn't um, in a blackout, but the same type of thing happened when I did get sober at 19 um, which was that I tried to prove that I could drink like a normal person. And, you know, I don't think I was drinking like a normal person, but I was drinking without severe consequences. Right. And, um, for a few months, and then there was a huge incident, blow up, emotional blow up with my boyfriend that I could not handle and stone cold sober. I got in my Jetta. Uh, I was living in Prescott, Arizona. I drove down to Phoenix again, stone cold, you know, sober at that moment. And, walked around knocking on trailer park doors because I didn't know where to find heroin, opening the door people and being like, I have money. Do you know where, do you have heroin? Like, I mean, I look back, I'm like, God, I was just so ballsy. Um, <laughs> it's just like unbelievable. And, you know, eventually I, I hit the magic trailer and uh, <laughs> they, uh, <laughs> they, they, well, you know, wait, knew- that's the title of this interview right there. Hit magic the magic trailer, trailer with, with yeah, Ashley I mean, Blasingame. Let's be real. Let's be real. The magic trailer. I mean, I just, oh God. It, all the, my poor parents, like all the things that could happen. I'm like, bingo. <laughs> but, yeah, they're like, you have money. We have, we have drugs. And, but no, I didn't have any, and they didn't have any clean rigs. All, all of their syringes that they had were used and they were rusted. And so I did the use junkie folklore where you pump it 10 times full of Clorox and then voila, all diseases are cast out. Um, and I did this in the, in the bathroom of this trailer. And um, next thing I know, I lost my hearing and I lost my vision. So I must've shot some amount of Clorox. I didn't want to overdose in this trailer so I did tiny little shots, like lots of tiny little shots in both of my arms because somehow I thought that that was going to stop. You know, I have a lot of great ideas when I'm using. Mm-hmm. Um, that was going to stop me from overdosing there. And instead, what it did, well, I guess I didn't overdose, so that was good. But I temporarily lost vision and hearing. And then I infected all the veins in both of my arms and could not move either of my arm. Woke up. Um, Several hours later, a hundred miles away at my house, like somehow I got home. I, my car was gone though. And I was with two guys I didn't know. And they had my drugs and both of my arms were stuck in like out in front of me in this like kind of marching position. And I couldn't move them. And I was yelling at these people to give me drugs, but like I couldn't administer them to myself on my own, which is how I describe like my incomprehensible demoralization that bottom my bottom was i it wasn't the worst thing that had ever happened to me but it was this moment of like i can't even give myself i render myself incapable of giving myself drugs within 24 hours that was not the plan the plan was not to get so medically disabled 
in 24 hours that I had to stop using. The plan was to go back and get sober like a week later. You know, I thought I had a week run in me, not 24 hours. And so I was, I had to go to the hospital and my mom was called, you know, it was just a complete, complete shit show. My, um, and I, it was like, I can't keep doing this. I'm just exhausted from this. I'm so like, this life is exhausting me and I'm not dying. I kind of always thought I would just drop dead in some of this. And then it would be, you know, really, oh, so sad, too bad. And that wasn't happening. It was just 24 hours, some horrific thing. You're in the hospital. Everybody's upset with you. You've, you've lost the car. You've lost the, you know, it's just like I come to in these most dramatic situations and then I have to clean it up. And mm -hmm. I was just tired. I was just tired. And my mom said to me um, in the hospital, she said, are you going to make me bury you? And it was just like the culmination of those things. And I, I was, I knew I had had been in enough treatment. I had been to enough 12 step. I had been in enough therapy that I knew what to do. And, um, and I did those things and, um, you know, I have put together uh, a day at a time for four, over 14 years of, of clean and sober time, um, with a lot of crazy, you know, struggle and shit in between. Well, your story, it's amazing you're, with, you're still with us. Uh, and, and I'm glad that you are. Uh, you, you sort of, uh, you, if, if we were playing in recovery bingo, you would have won a couple of times now. <laughs> Your story checks off all of the, you've got the cross, you've got the line down, you've got the side, you've got all of it. You, your, your, your story of use hits all of the boxes. Perfect. I love that. There was a game in early sobriety. We would go to these huge young people in AA, young people conventions. And it was, I mean, people thought we were drunk and we were just wild and rowdy. It was how we partied in our twenties. We went to this convention um, and we would, you know, groups of us in our early twenties, sober, we would play this game. Never have I ever. Yeah. And it would be, <laughs> it would be you know, a hundred people in these conference rooms at two in the morning. Um, and I'll never forget, we were in Reno, Nevada in the early 2000s or in mid 2000s. And there was never have I ever, and we were playing this game. So I set off never have I ever, and it was something to do with our, you know, using stories or whatever. No one got up. I did a full, like a hundred people are in this room. And I don't even remember what I said, but my, my, I had, you know, lots of girlfriends there who were, peeing their pants laughing at me I did a full revolution <laughs> around the circle to like wait for my seat to like jump up to see and I was like so out of 100 people no one okay so all right I'm just gonna yeah yeah those it. of us with these with these lived experiences you know I my wife knows this that there's very few circumstances where she will like oh wait have you ever done that? I'll be like, yeah, <laughs> you know, because yeah. it's like, you know, we we lived a lot during those periods. And, and it, this comes back to what you and I were talking, we talked about on your show and also what I mentioned earlier, which is that it doesn't have to be harmful to reminisce on some of this because it's not right. like every day was horrible, you no. know? And there's a guy I had on my show that I actually think would be great for yours. Um, he's the, the musician hoodie time. And he, uh, he and I went through our stuff around the same time. We knew each other and we were partying together and we had a lot of fun reminiscing. And he was yeah. like, man, you know, I, I just, I hate that we're not supposed to do this. And I was like, yeah, but that's such an outdated idea, you know, that we'll, you'll want to use again if you think about the good times. Well, because at the end, right? Like I could tell you the story of, going to Phoenix and the magic trailer park. And, um, you know, that wasn't fun. Yeah. That, that wasn't there. I mean, it's funny that I had <laughs> the idea to drive down two hours sober and like, it's ballsy, but like the fun stuff, like that's more, that's more like the crazy stuff we did. That's like, who does that? Yeah. Um, but like the fun stuff happened there was a lot of fun stuff that led up to that that happened before it got so bad. Mm -hmm. um, and then we were stuck in that washing machine, you know, just on repeat, right? But like there was, I mean, to say that none of it was fun is just a lie. It's just a blatant lie. So you're doing all of this 
while most people are going to prom and doing all of like yeah. the normal high school things, you know, uh, did you, did you graduate on like as expected? What, what was your, what no. was your path? Um, so my, my high schooling was mostly in, um, adolescent programs. Um, I actually graduated from an online high school while I was in college. Mm. Uh, cause I was like, I'm going to graduate high school. Damn it. And, um, so it's kind of a, we have a funny joke about how, like, I don't do anything in the right order. Um, and, um, and my, so the first two years, like I would go to, and I went to a couple outpatient programs. I did, was hospitalized a few times, but um, my freshman year, I was in a, a public school in the Bay area. And then my sophomore year, um, I, was at an alternative school, which is the most fun. Um, it was just like an everyday party. And uh, then um, I was thrown out of that school with a 4.0 GPA and um, and a, just like a whole host. They were like, yeah, you're a great student and we still don't want you back. <laughs> um, and then that summer um, after a series of things that was when um i got in trouble with the law and ended up getting having people come into the middle of the night and take me away <laughs> from my parents to treatment but eventually you get into recovery and eventually you go to college and yes eventually i so i started um community college i had hadn't graduated high school i uh, graduated high school while i'm in community college and then i applied to ucla I got into UCLA, uh, graduated from there in 2011, and um, and then I was going to go to law school and uh, started studying for the LSAT. I was working at the Orange County Public Defender's Office and started consulting on a project that my dad and his business partner were doing um, around you know, helping people get into treatment or access treatment earlier. And I had sworn, you know, they would talk to me about this. And I was like, I never, ever, ever. And every time I say this, I get, I get, I don't say it anymore because it totally screws me. Um, I was like, I don't ever want to work in treatment. Like I had been in treatment for over two years. Like I was mm -hmm. so institutionalized. I just did not want anything to do with the industry. Uh, I didn't want you know, I didn't want my whole life to be about the irony. I didn't want my whole life to be about my drug addiction. Like I was like, I need to be something more than this. Like I'm, I'm so much more than this. Um, and so I did a whole bunch of other things, but eventually I was like, I don't want to go to law school. Um, this is not like, I don't want to do this. Um, and, uh, and I helped, you know, co-found and start Lion Rock Recovery, which is the, which was the first um, telehealth program done um, for substance use disorders done entirely online through video conference, which now is much more normal. But in 2010, when we started, uh, was not only abnormal, but was not welcome by uh, people in our industry. And, um, you know, it's been 10 years since since then, since we founded the company and it's grown just exponentially in much of it in this last year since COVID, which has been um, just this crazy explosion of growth. But over the last, you know, probably around eight years, people started to, to take an interest in what we were doing. So this is about 15 minutes later than I normally do this, but let's pause and give my listeners a chance to learn where they can find you online, on social media, and all that kind of stuff. LionRockRecovery.com is where you can find the treatment, um, the professional treatment services that are online, um, full outpatient program. LionRock.life is where you can find all of our free support groups um, for whatever you're recovering from, uh, including 12-step and non-12-step. Um, and also the podcast, The Courage to Change, a recovery podcast, and the um, Instagram and Facebook handles are all the same, um, Courage to Change podcast, lionrock.life, lionrockrecovery, and then mine is Ashley Loeb Blossing Game. Hey, y'all. 
Because I didn't cover any of this stuff on the intro, I'm going to go ahead and replace one of my normal ads with a quick ad for my stuff here in the middle of the episode. Thank you to everyone who's ordered merch. Uh, I have another shipment going out later this week, and it makes me super happy, so thank you. Keep reaching out for merch. You can find that on my website, on social media. Thank you as well to people who keep filling out the survey and leaving reviews. Remember that until the end of the season, every review that is left, every survey that is filled out, gives you a chance to enter for some merch. One person will win a tank top. So please keep doing that. You can find that in the show notes. You can find it on my podcast website, jshiffman.com, and go to the podcast page. Please keep sharing, keep liking, keep reviewing, keep doing all of the things. We are nearing the end of season one, and I would love to keep this momentum going into season two. All right. Thank you all. Let's get back to the episode. Lion Rock constantly gets great reviews, and this is in an industry that that's not, unfortunately, the norm. <laughs> um, yeah. There are a lot of bad actors out there, and it, it's almost, to be frank, hard to defend sometimes because people are like, you know, I don't, I don't really want to go to treatment, look at all these stories, and you're kind of like, yeah. I mean, you're not wrong. <laughs> you know, yeah. there's a lot of bad ones, but then there are really good ones like Lion Rock. Other than the fact that you helped, I mean, you've been through the ringer, you know, you know, you were there and you guys have an amazing podcast. What is different about Lion Rock that, that is, makes it, uh, puts it ahead above the rest of all these other garbage places? So the, the, the co-founders, um, myself, my father and my business partner, Ian, two of them come from, um, so Ian and Peter come from the rest of the business world and um, they're not sober. And so uh, while they have family experiences, they um, come from, you know, vast business background. My dad always says, uh, my dad, who's Peter, he says, look, I worked on Wall Street and the treatment business is, is you know, often dirtier than Wall Street, <laughs> you know, and which I always cringe. Yeah. And I think the fact that, you know, one of the things that they always talk about, you know, we started Line Rock when I was 23. So I didn't have a ton of experience outside of the few weird jobs that I had had. And one of the things that they talk about is, you know, in, in the treatment business, this is considered like five-star treatment. In the rest of the business world, this is considered best practice. You don't lie or cheat or steal you don't you don't you don't bill insurance where something you know for something you didn't do you you know there's there are it's not something that that you can get away with uh very much and people don't typically do it at the same rate so i think coming from this background um, I remember early on, like early, early on saying, well, this is what everybody's doing because my friends all own homes and, you know, treatment homes and blah, 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 blah. This is what everybody else is doing. And I would say like, it, this is, is commonplace, you know? And they were like, yeah, but it's illegal. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, uh, and I would say, okay, but it's not unethical. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, it is illegal, but it's not unethical. And they're like, right, but it's illegal. Like we don't do, we, it just, those types of things and then you know we definitely don't do things that are unethical um but we also don't do things that are illegal so when you take those two things out and when the patient is number one um it was just it's actually not that hard um but it is very it's a very 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 difficult business to make money in and to to stay afloat and so what I do understand is that a lot of people do things that aren't unethical but are illegal in order to keep the doors open because it's so hard to make money. Well, we came from the big business world. We had institutional investors. We had we had done things in a very different way. So it wasn't small, you know, three-person owned treatment centers trying to stay afloat and doing things that were in the gray area or not gray area. To, you know, to, to stay that way. 
And, and I think that's really important to say because, it, it, you know, I don't want to paint too broad of a brush. There are uh, way too many people who get into that line of work only to make money. They don't do anything good. But then there are a lot of people who get into it for the right reasons and end up in that gray area doing things that are not exactly. unethical but illegal yeah. because they're forced to by right. our shitty healthcare system, exactly. our awful industry of insurance exactly. that makes it almost awful. impossible. I mean, the, 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 we always say the insurance companies, it's like they don't want us to be in business at all. I mean, they basically make it impossible. And it has so many places, including huge household names have gone under because it just wasn't tenable. You couldn't, you couldn't, I mean, we, they were insurance companies reduced what they paid us by 30% in one year, in one year but the costs went up, the cost of providing service went up. I mean, it was just, it's, it's, it's crazy. So I understood where a lot of that was coming, but what it, it changes. And then you have things, and then you do have really bad people, right? I mean, you probably have those in every industry, but you have what, you know, what we call body brokers and things like that. And people who take advantage of the fact that it's a hard business to make money in. Right. And when, you know, the, so it's, it's all, it's all that stuff. And it's stuff, you know, for, for the analogy, it's stuff that happens on wall street too. I mean, I think where there's, where there's, you know, loopholes and struggle and competition, this stuff happens, but it also, you know, doing the right thing um, by your patients just has to be number one. And if you use that as your guiding light, then um, like truly number one, then uh, I think it makes the other stuff a lot easier. Like, do your patients need to be drug tested eight times a day? No. I would assume not. Unless you have a really bad program. Yeah, I can't, I can't env envision a situation where anyone needs that many drug tests. I mean, I can't either, but you know. I think that is a topic we could go <laughs> round for round in because it's something that we both have seen up close. Um, and, and I think one of the things that was so fascinating when you and I spoke the first time was about how we both went through what is thankfully now a more outdated mode of treatment, yes. which was the, you know, the sit everybody in a circle, the, the shift that was in one flew over the cuckoo's nest and hasn't changed when you and I went over this, it went through this in the early, you know, in the mid two two thousands, like, and, and how incredibly damaging that can yes. be to somebody and yet it was still the modus operandi as of 10 years ago. Yep, yep. It was that break you down to build you back up thing. And what they did not calculate for was that we were broken. Yeah. <laughs> we showed up broken, you know? I mean, it's kind of, they do that in prison, right? They break you down and then build you into this institutional thing. But you come in broken. All yeah. that, you know, it, it doesn't, and that level of trauma and abuse does not help you heal, you know, but again, thank God that's so much of that is, is no, we aren't seeing that as much. So how has this year been for, I imagine, like you said, you guys have grown, but is it because there are more people moving online or because there are just that many more people who are really struggling right now, a little from column A, a little from column B? Yeah, I would, I mean, I think most, I think, uh, I think a huge percentage is online, that that many people are online. I think there is a percentage of people who, it, it, who were on the edge and it threw them over the edge and then they can't go in person or insert, you know, long list of things. Um, also financially, um, our program is way more affordable, which was part of why we did it that way. Sure. Um, because we felt like, you know, having to get a second mortgage on your home just to put your child into some sort of substance use treatment, you know, mul when we know that multiple times is usually what it takes, you know, the whole thing, like right. that didn't make sense. So I think it's a combination of things uh, and, and, and that desperation um, and be what, what people can afford uh, going online, um, you know, frail family, just absolutely, just all of it. And, uh, but a huge piece was like, everybody came online. And I also think suddenly people knew that this was an option. That was another thing. I, there was just this, you know, it, it, we always used to say like, you didn't know you needed an iPad until you knew what an iPad was. Right. And that's, that's the same. Like people didn't know we existed. So let's address those who are listening, maybe, or, or they, they, you know, they're listening, they know someone, and they're going, wow, this sounds 
awesome. Like I didn't know this was a thing, like you were just saying. What does working with Lion Rock sort of give a snapshot of what that treatment looks like? Um, well, we're primary substance use disorder treatment at the moment. Um, and um, that means that you have to have some sort of some sort of substance use. Um, and we're an outpatient program. So we've actually been using Zoom for eight years. <laughs> and you you would call uh, you, you call or, or um, do live chat with one of our admissions counselors on the website and they would do an intake and an assessment with you. And then basically we have um, 50 different program tracks uh, that for people in any time zone to make it work any time zone, any, any schedule, emergency room doctors, um, you know, oil rig workers, you name it, we have it. Um, and oh, I almost said formula, the outpatient, it, it's group, uh, an intensive outpatient is group three times a week for three hours with an individual session once a week. So that's 10 hours of treatment a week. And then you step down to outpatient, which is a group twice a week for 90 minutes and then an individual. So every week, every, every level you get an individual with your primary counselor once a week. And the combination and typically on average people do three months, but it, people do anything from a month and a half to two years. So, you know, it's just, it, we have a, um, a curriculum that is incredible. I mean, that is just the backbone of our program. And, um, we have speakers come in, we have all, you know, all, do all sorts of different, um, dynamic. We have a trauma group, we have women's groups, men's groups. So, um, LGBTQ groups. So, the, the uh, research shows that the combination of group and individual counseling, the treatment, substance use specific, make just a huge difference in the outcomes of people. People who just do individual, which is of course what everyone wants to do. Everyone just wants to, I don't wanna do, I don't like to, blah, blah, blah. Um, but the people who do group and individual do so much better. Um, in outcome studies. And so that's a huge piece of it. And I, I think it's so important. And, um, and then it, and then it's kind of, you focus on what it is that's going on, you know, what your individual components are with your primary therapist. So I'm really glad you touched that because one of the things that when, when you and I were first when I first got introduced to your podcast, actually, and looked into what Lion Rock was, I was so impressed that everyone gets at least one session a week of individual mm -hmm. because so many of these places only do group. Because, the, because insurance doesn't pay for it. So we take a loss on it. On each individual session. That's right. So that's another example of Lion Rock putting the patient first, even though... It, so, so in, in your eyes, then you see this from the other end, is that something that we just have to get the insurance to, to be held accountable for? Um, so yes, I mean, they make it so that you have to do, they make it so they'll only, they give you a, a package price or the, a, a, they bundle the price of what they'll pay basically for certain, um, for certain policies. And they and in some of them it's like they'll only pay for it if you do it on the same day that you did some other three-hour group and so you can get it paid for if you make the person sit, sit through three hours a group and then an hour of individual which no one wants to do so they make you jump through all these hoops for something that everybody should be getting is that right right and and you know, it's, it's one of those things. And this is where my team is kind of the way that, so two people who are from, you know, corporate America, and then me, who's not only in recovery, but has been to a, too many <laughs> treatment centers. Um, and I've also been to every level of care that exists from, mm -hmm. you know, from 5150 to luxury 30 day. Um, so you know, it's just not an option. Like, it's just not optional. So I say like, where do we cut? Because right. we're not going to not do that. But, 
you know, we do sit in these meetings and look at the numbers going, what are we going to do? How do we, how do we do this? How do we pay the therapists who are like, we don't want to be overworked. We don't want to be, um, you know, undervalued. We don't totally all those things. Our rates are going up. Cost of living is going up while the insurance company is pulling down the numbers and people don't have the money to pay for treatment. You know, it's just like, it's so frustrating, but yeah, so we do, that is, and no matter what you're doing, you have an individual session an hour a week. Well, it's a shame that you have to make those choices. Um, but, but obviously you, your patients are lucky that you, you do. Um, again, a topic we could talk about for hours, but I am very conscious of both of our time. So I'm going to go into the final two questions I ask everybody uh, on every interview. Number one, uh, we are living in an unprecedented time of stress, anxiety, and all that. What are your self-care habits? What is working for you right now? Uh, and, and, you know, talk a little bit about that. Um, so exercise, I know that's like, sounds like I'm every wellness coach on the planet. Um, there's a lot of great neuroscience around why it matters, but exercise for me helps my depression, helps my eating, helps, helps it all. Um, I did buy a stationary bike of a popular, person. <laughs> um, that has been very helpful because <laughs> the barrier to entry is quite small. Yeah. Um, it's right next to me. So, uh, I've been doing that and, um, swimming a lot, you know, just making sure there's some amount of exercise because it really helps, um, my depression, which is it might, you know, around isolation and, and connection, which has been harder, that kind of thing. Um, getting out and, you know, again, I live in Southern California, so easy for me, but getting out into the sunshine, getting sunshine on my skin. Um, there's a lot of research that shows that that helps a lot. And then um, doing, using insight timer on my phone to do like at least five minutes of meditation. And lastly, um, I've been um, in Overeaters Anonymous for over a year. I, I mean, I've been in and out for, I like to say, I, I come annually um, <laughs> for, for, you know, 15 years, but I've been, you know, consistently going for a year and a half. And um, I discovered um, something to complement that, which has been a game changer for me called Bright Line Eating, um, which is... Um, a program designed by a, a woman who's a neuroscientist, who's in recovery a gazillion years, who was in OA for 12 years. And, and long story short, for people like me, um, you know, with my background, my history, um, I have struggled very, very much with eating sugar and flour, and they make me an insane human being. And um, I have done everything under the sun not to not eat those things in my diet. And finally, it was just willing. I don't know. It just, I just became willing. And since I have taken those things out imperfectly, um, out of my diet, I am so much in the, you know, this happened during COVID. Um, I am so much saner. It's just, it's like, I, I wish I wasn't because then I could be like, Oh, you know, no big deal. Um, but just, I sleep better. I'm just a lot less tired, a lot less moody. Um, so that has been a huge self-care thing for me because uh, I regularly just want to um, eat my feelings, especially during COVID era. And so, and like, and I have a good life. Things are good for me. So the fact that I want to use things to feel better, I mean, it's in some ways it's historically accurate. In other ways, it's just goes to show you that, you know, all of us are feeling that the tension from the world. I think the, you know, not to sound too California woo woo, but I think the vibration on the planet is just different. It just feels different. So those have been my my main go-tos. Uh, well, thank you for that. And I do want to say that if, if any of my followers go follow you on Instagram, you are very, uh, you don't hold back. You don't, you aren't one of those people that puts up a fake, you know, Instagram uh, feed where <laughs> it makes it look like everything's perfect. You're very honest with your social media. And I appreciate that about you. Well, I could just say, I love it. People are like, I love your parenting. It's just like, you let them make messes and it's messy and it's this. And I'm like, man, <laughs> a compliment. I don't know. But yes, it's definitely real and people notice. 
Uh, well, your boys are very cute. All right, final question. You know, we've talked a lot about the amazing work you and Lion Rock are, are doing today. Who are some people that you want to shout out that are doing awesome work that we should go follow, we should go read, uh, we should go watch, listen to, whatever the case is? Okay, so um, I, this is like a mild plug, but it's not 100% a plug. So I'm doing a panel on National Online Recovery Day which is September 22nd, and one of my favorite people, and I'm going to try to not fangirl all over her, um, is going to be on the panel. Her name is Gabby Bernstein. Um, she's sober, and she does amazing uh, stuff if you're, if you're into that stuff. Um, and uh, so I would definitely follow her. Uh, Susan Pierce Thompson, um, neuroscientist of Brightline Eating, um, and... Um, the holistic psychologist on Instagram, uh, really love following her, find her stuff to be, um, really inspiring. I'll leave, I'll leave those, I'll leave those as my top three. Have you ever thought about starting your own podcast and then thought, oh, man, I just, I don't even know where to begin. Well, I have the perfect answer for you. It's Anchor. They have all the tools you need to get started right away all in one spot. You can do it from your phone or your computer. They'll even distribute for you, so you don't have to go looking for places to get your podcast out. But the best part is it's all free. That's right. You can sign up today without any hassle at all. You can even start making money right from the beginning. It's everything you need in a podcast in one place. So check it out today. Go to anchor.fm or download the free Anchor app to get started. All right, we've come to the end of another episode. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Choose Your Struggle podcast. Thank you to my guests, Ashley Loeb, Blasting Game, and Brendan Black. I'm going to keep this short because this is going to be a longer episode already. Today's card brought to you by Blurt, as always. Thank you, Blurt, for your incredible work. Today's card is coming from the Believe in Yourself card pack, because no matter which side you are on the political spectrum here in the U.S., I think we can all agree this shit ain't working. So, you gotta believe in yourself. And the card. Nobody knows your heart better than you. Trust your instincts. Never let anyone cast a shadow over your sunshine. And that was said by a person named Michael Faudet. Michael Faudet. Uh, that's a great card, and that's, that goes well into what I was just saying. At this point, this idea that some political party is going to save us or some political leader is going to save us or blah, blah, blah. It's just, it's just not happening. It's not happening because no matter what – I'm recording this again. I'm still on Wednesday. No matter what happens – it probably won't be decided by the time I put this podcast out, but the the fact is, as we've seen, this shit is super broken. And it goes even farther back to the fact that we aren't allowing people to to really express themselves, right? Because third parties aren't allowed in this country for all intents and purposes. We legally disenfranchise just as many people who vote third parties. That's a problem. And so many people are disgusted by this that we're celebrating the, the highest turnout since 1900, and it's going to be roughly two-thirds of our population, which is really high for the U.S., and this is all just terribly sad. So trust yourself. Do what you got to do for you because ain't nobody else coming to save you. And that is your good egg for this week. Your good egg is to do something for yourself. The last two years of this election, and it is two years, by the way, I'm not, that's not an exaggeration. The first people announced they were running for president roughly end of November of 2018. Who knows? Who knows at this point? It could have been 2005 because COVID and this election has gone on for as long as we've all been alive. Take some time this weekend for you. Take some time to just do something to make you happy. Do a hobby. Go for a walk be with your loved ones, do something for you. Because again, no matter who ends up winning this thing, it, none of this is over. The country is still deeply divided. Racism is still an American value. But it's just, it, at this point, just do what you got to do for you. All right, most importantly, remember, be vulnerable, 
be empathetic, spread your love, and choose your struggle. Huge shout out to my podcast sponsor, Mountain Made CBD. Mountain Made is changing the CBD game by offering a line of high-dose CBD tablets at an affordable price. Their products are THC-free and third-party tested for accuracy, cleanliness, and potency. Their products, which now ship nationwide, include Build for CBD saturation, Boost for precision titration, and Recover for rest and rehab. With nine years' experience in hemp and fitness, Mountain Maid's founders are focused on creating a quality CBD product to help those with activated lifestyles. Check out www.mountainmade.life to find out more about how their product can help you crush your life. And you know I'm all about that. Remember, their products ship nationwide. So go check out the website today and follow them on social media at Mountain Made. And also listen to episode seven with Mountain Made founder, Mike Passion. All right, back to the episode. Episode. 